Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Y'all a brew heads? Yeah, we brew heads. So pour a glass of craft beer. We can do this. Yeah. What's good, y'all? This is C Certified Brewhead, and welcome to episode 79 of Beer and Other Shit, the podcast adjunct series. We are back with another episode. We are back in Florida. Twice, two episodes, first time in six years that we were with Florida, with a Florida brewery. What was that, three weeks ago, maybe? We're back again. We can't get enough of that sun, mate. We're just going to bring him right in. This evening, uh, we have Kevin and Matt of Odd Breed. <laughs> Boys, welcome, 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 welcome. I had to bring the applause. Welcome, guys. Kevin, welcome back. And Matt, uh, welcome for the first time, man. Thanks for having me. Genuine. Yeah, a, a honor and a privilege to be back with you so soon. Right. Worked out uh, beautifully. Uh, so it was fantastic. For those who didn't hear it, I think it was, um, would have been episode maybe 76 or 75, I believe. I should have checked. But Kevin from Barrel of Monks, we had a great chat about all things Florida beer, Belgian beer. And whilst we were chatting, we talked about Odd Breed, and I was like, "Well, this sounds amazing. Let's let's talk." And Kevin hit up Matt, and Matt was down. And here we are, only a few weeks later. So this is going to be a super interesting one because the approach that you guys are taking to the beer is is quite unique, and um, you know it's not not the most common way of producing beer, which makes it extra special. So I'm very excited to talk about it. The first beer I'm going to do the uh, we have uh, this beer is so special right now that it hasn't even been labeled yet the uh this one drops very soon i believe is that correct that's right what's yeah, the date we're actually going to release that at our fourth anniversary party uh which is november 27th oh okay we've still got a solid few weeks okay that's so right. yep. mate this is a a big uh, exclusive right here so do you guys want to tell us about this beer whilst i open because it's got uh, a cork and the cap which is super cool so it might take me a sec to get it open. That's right. Yeah. So, so basically the concept for this beer, uh, really this whole series, we, we're doing a series called Oddities and Outliers. And the, the concept for the series is to blend dissimilar beers uh, to try to end up with something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And uh, so in the case of this beer, it's three different beers. Uh, about 48% of the blend is a wild ale that was fermented exclusively with our mixed culture. Uh, aged 16 months in French oak punchions, and then dry hopped with whole leaf cascade, citra, and mosaic hops. Uh, and that was blended with approximately 40, uh, I'm sorry, 38% of a spontaneous beer that spent 12 months in neutral French oak wine barrels. Jesus. And then about 14% of a wild lager that was actually brewed with a single decoction, basically brewed like a Munich Hellas, and then aged in French oak punchions <coughs> for three years. That is insane. I'm going to have to, at some point, ask you to, to repeat that so I can write it down. That is <laughs> incredible. Uh, that color is is phenomenal. The head. As, like, as you were describing all of those things, I'd, I'd opened it and was pouring it while Tiff was taking the photos. And I was getting a lot of those those uh, elements here. I'm definitely getting the the lager was one of the first things that hit me, which is phenomenal. Um, I need to try this, man. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Matt, the thing I'm most impressed by this is the fact that you My remembered goodness. all that. Yeah, <laughs> percentages. I would. Uh, do you have like notes on your hand? Are you are you cheating no, at all? No, nothing on my hands. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for some reason, I remember numbers. Um, a lot of times, numbers that don't mean anything really. <laughs> it's not always like... the most useful skill to have. <laughs> hey, uh, I think it, I think it is in this uh, 
circumstance because that, that is pretty phenomenal better to write that off. So where did the idea of this, this is the blend two, by the way. So blend one has been out. Blend yep. two is dropping November uh, 27th, as you mentioned. Um, That's right. Blend one, was that two? I mean, you don't have to repeat all the numbers. I imagine it will be somewhat similar as far uh, as no, actually, no it's, different it's pretty different. Yeah, it's pretty different. So the, the one element that's kind of the same in blend one is uh, the wild lager. Uh, that, okay. that was also used in, in blend one. Uh, but it has two other beers uh, that are that are relatively different. One of them is our Lambic-inspired Wild Ale. Okay. And uh, to be honest, the other one, I uh, don't recall what it was uh, just yet. We make a, a lot of different beers. Uh, you know, that's why I got to write stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a lot, but not everything. <laughs> I respect it. Those brewing sheets are handy for a reason. This is, um, this is mine. This is exceptional. Um, the, the flavors, you want to maybe talk us through some of the flavor profile we're getting here because there's so much going on, but it works in harmony so beautifully. Like this is just such an impeccable beer. I don't know if I've really had anything much like this before. Yeah. One thing I really like about this beer is, is the way that it evolves as it warms up. It's, Mm. uh, you know, as it's, when it's, you know, pretty cold and you first open it, uh, I personally get a lot of the, the dry hop notes, um, Mm -hmm. that, that element from the dry hopped wild ale that, that, you know, is, is almost 50% of the blend. Uh, I get a lot of those kind of grassy, citrusy notes, a little bit of tropical notes from the mosaic and citra. Uh, Cascade's one of my favorite hops. We use that a good bit. Um, it's also uh, hopped relatively intensely in the kettle. Um, one thing that we do differently than I think most wild ale producers uh, and other breweries that make sour beers is that we use a good bit of hops. Mm. Uh, part of that is to control the flavor profile, uh, especially the production of acidity. But, uh, but it's also to really drive uh, and kind of play off the esters that we get from our mixed culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I really like getting those, uh, those citrusy tropical notes. Uh, some, some of that, uh, you know, funk, the barnyard funk, whatever you want to refer to it as. Uh, but, the, but the idea is to, uh, to, to make it all, uh, you know, work in balance and, and not just be over the top in, in any one area. Um, the idea for, for blending these three very different beers was, was really to try to build some complexity into the blend. Mm-hmm. I feel that, uh, you know, I, I do make plenty of beers that aren't blended at all, um, you know, where I, I brew them with a, the purpose of them being one particular type of beer. And, uh, and I like those beers, and I think that they usually work out well. But in my opinion, when you're making a beer that's, you know, kind of like this, this one in that, you know, 5 to 6% range, uh, you know, light in color, um, not aggressively you know, hoppy, citrusy, it's not overly sour. Uh, I really feel like like blending some different beers that have some unique elements mm. uh, really makes for a more interesting final product. Couldn't agree more. What was the exact percent of this one? Uh, about 6.8. 6.8, okay. And it was 48% wild ale. Um, and the there was two others, the wild, wild lager as well. Yeah, so it's 48% is a, uh, a wild ale that's essentially brewed kind of like an IPA, and, okay. uh, and that's dry hopped as well. Uh, 38% of the blend is a spontaneous beer, uh, so okay. that's a, it's a turbid-mashed wild ale. It's brewed essentially like a, a traditional lambic, uh, with one key exception being that while it is inoculated with microbes from the air, I don't have a cool ship. Okay. Uh, also being in South Florida, cool ships aren't exactly practical. Uh, I don't think it's really going to work. Um, so what I do is I, I basically, I inoculate the, the beer in a, a, a large square open tank, uh, that I park under our AC vent in our brewery. 
And wow. so it's, it's recirculating. Uh, our air conditioning basically is recirculating the, the air that's, that's in our barrel room, but it's also drawing in some fresh air from outside. Uh, I allow that, uh, that tank to sit open overnight. Uh, then I, I close it up, uh, wait for fermentation to start, which is usually a few days, and then I transfer it to barrels. Amazing. And then yeah, the and then, re- yes, go on. Remaining was the, the lager. That's right. Yeah. So the remaining portion is the the wild lager. I've used that in a few different beers now. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a beer that I really like to use. It has some really interesting elements. A lot of uh, I, I describe it as more like an apricot sort of stone fruit flavor. Mm, that's but it has considerable French oak tannins from being three years in barrels. Uh, it doesn't actually have much lactic acidity. Uh, it's actually not a very sour beer. But it does have some acetic acid uh, from being in the barrels for three years. And mm. acetic acid is going to be present in any beer with, that is fermented with Britannomyces. Uh, the idea is to, to have that in balance. You know, I really don't want a beer that's going to taste like vinegar. You start pushing that flavor too far. You start picking up solvent notes as well. And I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to those. Uh, the idea here was, was to bring in some of that, that very aged element uh, to add a little bit of complexity. And, and like I said, kind of increase those tannins. Uh, and give you some of those those nice stone fruit notes. Love it. This is uh, an exceptional beer. This is fantastic. Was it much? Would you guys say this is a a lot different to Blend One, or is it sort of along the same lines, just you know, different flavor profiles? Well, Blend One didn't have anything dry hopped in it. Uh, okay. So in that sense, this is this is a decent bit different. Uh, it did have a, a portion of our lambic inspired beer. However, Blend One uh, was not spontaneously fermented at all. Gotcha. Okay. So totally different, very unique beer. Uh, November 27th, ready to go. Love it. This is beautiful. And this, I mean, are, Matt, are we like the first people cracking this thing open and drinking it out of a bottle? Uh, you're amongst the first. So I, I did <laughs> some uh, with, a, with a few other people in the tap room uh, shortly after we, we got the news of, about winning the medal. Uh, this, this beer was actually packaged back in April of this year. And okay. so- you know, all, of, all the beers the that we make are condition. naturally carbonated. Yeah, whether, whether it be in the bottle or keg, they're all naturally conditioned. And, uh, and I, I really try to be patient with them and give them some time to develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I've noticed that uh, maybe is a little bit counterintuitive, um, maybe not, I guess maybe not if you've been, you know, making these beers for a while. But one thing I've noticed, at least with my beers, is that the more time they spend in barrels, the longer I feel like I need to condition them in the bottle before they're uh, where I would say they're, they're ready to drink. Uh, hmm. I would say that this one is ready to drink, but you know, I, I already pretty much, uh, from the, the moment that I put this into a bottle decided that I wanted to release it at our anniversary. Okay. What, uh, anniversary is this one? Which year or how many years? Fourth. Fourth. Yeah, Amazing. Fourth anniversary. Yeah. Fantastic. So I guess we'll come sort of back to that. Maybe we should start off, uh, <clears throat> with your beer history, Matt, and then as far as how you personally got into beer, and then we can transition into the, the, the history of the brewery itself. And then, Kevin, how you got involved, because I know it was at a bit of a different, um, a different well, phase. I, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butt in here because I feel like we buried the lead somewhere along the fact that this beer won a gold medal at GABF. Oh, shit. We didn't touch on that. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk and, about that, please. It's, it's one of the reasons why we want to pull this thing out. And that's a, that's a pretty great feat for this style of beer. Mm. The wild beer, uh, you know, dominated a lot of times by European producers, people that have been doing this for a couple hundred years. And uh, I think that's a pretty cool thing, right? That's beyond cool. What category did it uh, win under? And it was this year, right? Which was like 
That's right. Last yeah, month. This year it was in the, the mixed culture Brett beer category. Mm. So pretty much everything we make fits in that category. So, so it's perfect. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a nice honor uh, to receive the award for that. That is impeccable. Um, well, I guess. The, well, I'm sorry. Go. I didn't no, feel like sir. I was stepping on you there. No, um, no. One of the things that I love about this, and I was telling this to Matt before we got on the air, is that there are a million uh, categories at GABF at every beer fest. And some of them are field beer where you can use peanuts. And some of them are where you can have a lot of different spices and super high gravity and, and big, bold stouts and things of that nature. And as a person who used to brew <laughs> professionally, the thing I always wanted to win for was a clean, well-made, well-structured beer. I want to win for a lager. I want to win for a wit beer. I want to win for a classic style. There's a million of them out there and mine kind of shines above it. Whereas even some of the beers I make, like I mentioned, my father Christmas, which is a spiced dark strong ale, I'd be super proud to win for that, but it wouldn't be mean the same as winning for the wit. And that's where I kind of puff my chest out a little bit for odd breed is the fact that this is not fruited. This is not gimmicky. This is a blended beer with beautiful balance that gives getting recognition. And that's what I kind of applaud Matt for. I love it. Do you, does this, uh, do, do you think it indicates a, a bit of a change? I mean, I know it was a specific category, but do you think that um, this style, these styles of beers are starting to maybe, I feel like they've always been very popular, like insanely popular amongst a very passionate niche of, of people. Um, do you guys think that perhaps there's, it's starting to widen the market maybe as, you know, the pendulum is swinging towards the, the craziest stuff over the last few years? Um, it's kind of coming back and people are wanting those crisp, clean lagers and, and more traditional beers and maybe something like this that's just no adjuncts, just care and time, really. I, I think some people are, are – getting back into these types of beers. You know, I, I kind of joke around with, with some other brewer friends, you know, that things can only get so dumb, right? You can only <laughs> stuff so many cookies into a beer before you, you can't fit any more cookies into the package. That is I mean, true. There, there's a limit, there's a limit on everything. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's more creativity than ever before in beer right now. And I, I definitely applaud that. Um, but I, I really prefer kind of getting back to the basics and, uh, you know, what I mean by that is that our, you know, our slogan is flavor from fermentation. Hmm. And I really look at the, the yeast cultures that we use, you know, which are our house yeast culture and then occasionally doing spontaneous beers. I really look at that as, as the driving force behind the flavor of our beer and the, the focus of our brewery. And to a lot of people, that's, that's a really foreign idea. Uh, it's, not, it's not very common uh, nowadays, I feel like, in, in the craft beer world. You know, most, most brewers are choosing more or less the same yeast strains that they can find in a catalog from any one of the dozen or so different suppliers that we have in the U.S. and there are more internationally. And, you know, there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, this, this whole, uh, I guess, mindset, this method of, of ordering your ingredients from a catalog and, and uh, you know, brewing a beer that's, that's almost like paint by numbers, mm. um, you can certainly make a, a really engaging and, and phenomenal beer doing doing something like that. But I really wanted to kind of work outside the lines. Uh, I guess I don't color in the lines, you know, you could, you could say that, but, uh, um, you know, we've, we've had, we've had some people that come into the tap room that are very knowledgeable about beer and maybe don't know a lot about these styles that we make. We've had other people who come in 
and they don't know a whole lot about beer, but maybe they, uh, they're really passionate about wine and they find some similarities in our production methods and the flavors that are in our beer and they gravitate towards it. Uh, we've also found that our beer appeals to a lot of women and uh, okay. consequently there are a lot of guys that, you know, will bring their girlfriend here. And, uh, and that's, that's something that I, I think also kind of sets us apart. Uh, you know, you go into your typical tap room and it's, it's pretty much all guys. Uh, mm. That's not typically the case at our brewery. Is there any reason you think that is? Is it more welcoming or is it the styles of beers uh, just happen to appeal to, to women? Uh, I'd like to think it's both. Okay. I'd like to think it's both. But, uh, you know, I, I think ultimately I think a lot of it has to do with the, the product itself. Um, you know, because we've, we've got 12 taps, uh, 10 of which are, are barrel-aged sour beers, um, you know, I, I carry a good bit of guest beers. I also carry wine. We carry cider. We carry beer from, uh, from multiple, you know, I, I think we've, we've got about 35 different beers on our, our guest beer menu, um, most of which are, are European, actually. Um, and then, of course, we also carry stuff from Barrel Monks, and I carry some stuff from uh, my buddy's brewery over in uh, St. Petersburg, Green Bench Brewing Company. Uh, they, they do some phenomenal lagers, so I really like keeping their stuff on. Um, but, you know, I, I try to have something for everyone. I, I realize that not everyone who walks through our doors is going to be into, you know, a, a beer made with bread and aged in barrels that tastes kind of like funky wine. Um, yeah. That's that's not everybody's jam. And that's okay. You know, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, they like coming to our place and hanging out, drinking whatever it is that they, they like on our menu. And then, you know, maybe one day they'll they'll decide that they want to, get a small pour of one of our beers. I love that. Do you think there's maybe a correlation between maybe the growth and popularity of natural wine, which shares a lot more, you know, in similarity to beers like this, that, and, and not even gender specific, just natural wine is becoming more popular. So perhaps that people are looking are getting used to those flavor profiles in wine when they've, you know, existed in beer for a long time. And then they can discover those similar ish, you know, the funk and the, there's sort of that tartness and things like that, that, that it might share with something like this. How, do you guys, is there any correlation there that you guys have seen or am I kind of reaching there? I, I think there is some crossover. Uh, Kevin might be the, the better one to answer that question. He has a, a better background in wine than I do. Uh, I will say that, that my, uh, and I could be off base here, but my general understanding is that the natural wine movement in South Florida hasn't really taken off okay. uh, the way that it has in other parts of the country. And I think part of that is because Nobody down here is making wine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if we were in uh, uh, Pacific Northwest uh, or if we were out in, in Napa, uh, you know, I, I think that there would be a, a, a different attitude, uh, you know, towards that. But um, uh, I don't know. What do you think, Kevin? I know nothing. I don't know what natural wine is. I didn't know it existed until about uh, 37 seconds ago. So uh, I, okay. I, 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 I'm ignorant. <laughs> Fair enough. I, 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 I do think, though, that uh, when people talk, and I'm, Matt gets this, I'm sure, a lot, and we get this for the sour beers that we carry uh, at Barrel Amongst as well, uh, when someone comes in and says they don't like sour beers or that doesn't sound good or, oh, why would you want a sour beer? And they say, I don't like sour things. And they go, well, what's your favorite wine style? And they go, Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. Well, there's a good amount of tartness there. So I think there is crossover in the wine industry and what Matt's talking about as far as being able to convert some people over. Mm. I think a lot of it is just the way that we present it and, uh, and using terms like wild instead of sour. I mean, some of this is marketing, but at the end of the day, if someone's expecting to like something in front of them, they're 
have a much higher probability of liking it. If something is expecting to not like something, they have a much higher probability of not liking it. So if we can couch at beer as we slide it across the table to them in a gorgeous tap room with barrels all over the place and you're telling a story and you're painting a picture and you go, this is what you're going to taste a lot of people will enjoy that sour beer where if they had it, you know, cold on their couch because someone handed them a glass, they'd say, eh, it's disgusting. Mm. And that's how we get people. That's how you hook them. That's really a good point, man. Like, I love that. I think that is really what it is because it is about experience and people relate to that experience and also to the narrative, to stories. So if you're telling a story about this beer and even if you're probably blowing people's minds when you're saying, well, this beer is 48% wild ale and then. 38% you know all this stuff and they're like what the fuck like how did this even happen and trying to put it all together particularly newer beer drinkers and then getting these flavors as you as you uh, you know talk through it particularly because you're looking at this beer you're like there is no apricots in here but you're tasting apricots and like people are like boom you know mind blown with this stuff I love it um, this is like the more I drink this is just exceptional this is really, really insane. Um, I, I completely get it. I, I hadn't heard of Oddbreed until Kevin and I spoke about it. And then when Kevin was saying, telling me that people are like lining up for these beers and this is like huge trade fodder type stuff, I get it. And I'm already halfway through one glass and I already, I, I see the vibes. I see, this, this, I know so many people here, particularly here in Montreal, there's a big uh, culture of, of breweries who, are, who make this type of stuff. Like even obviously the Belgian stuff, Cantillon and, and, and so on is really massive here, but there's a bunch of local breweries that do this. So I know a lot of people that would lose their minds over this stuff. Um, brilliant. I love it. Let's, um, let's tap into um, your beer history. Maybe we'll do that first, Matt, and then we'll go into Kev's involvement and then the, how the brewery came about. I'd love to hear that story. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I got into beer while I was studying in school. Um, actually I should, I should mention prior to that, uh, when I was 15 and 16, I was living in Belgium. And, awesome. uh, so that's really where I got into beer because, uh, you know, back then there was no drinking age, legal drinking age anyway, in Belgium, mm. uh, there were some cultural expectations, you know? Um, but, uh, anyway, awesome. the Euro had just came out and, uh, you know, the exchange rate for the dollar to the Euro was, was very much in my favor. Um, it was like 87 cents. Uh, U.S. buys you one euro. I could go to a bar. I could buy a Chimay Blue for a euro, or maybe a euro fifty if I went to a nice bar. Wow. You know, so growing up, being fifteen, sixteen years old, drinking Chimay, drinking Duval, drinking La Chouf, you know, drinking some some awesome Belgian beers, really kind of got me into beer. But I didn't really realize that until I moved back to the U.S. and uh, I moved back to South Carolina, uh, which is of note because back then. They had a limit on alcohol by volume. Uh, it's actually alcohol by weight um, mm. at 5%, which equates to about 6.2% alcohol by volume. Mm. So there were plenty of good beers that I couldn't get over there. Uh, I started going to school. I went to Clemson University, uh, studying microbiology. And my dad had always talked about homebrewing, but never got into it. Uh, as soon as I moved into an off-campus apartment, I said, I'm buying a homebrew kit. And I uh, got my buddies to pitch in for ingredients so we could... Uh, we could start brewing and, uh, beer was okay. It was drinkable. Uh, wasn't anything great. I didn't know anybody else that brewed, but, uh, but I got pretty interested in it. And I, I did an internship at a, a brewery up in Pennsylvania over the winter holidays. Uh, and then eventually started working at Thomas Creek even before I graduated. And, uh, they hired me because I had a degree in microbiology and they really liked my, my lab background, my science background. 
I uh, started there as an assistant brewer, eventually worked my way up to head brewer. And I knew that I wanted to go to brewing school. And so I moved out to Berlin and I went to VLB Berlin and uh, I got my brewmaster's diploma out there. Moved back to the U.S., uh, did some consulting work, uh, worked at a, a brew pub for about five years while I was working on opening Oddbreed. Uh, the plan was to work there for three years and then open Oddbreed, but uh, it always takes longer than you expect to open a brewery. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, uh, that's, that's where we are pretty much today. Uh, like I said, the brewery's been open uh, four years now. Amazing. That's crazy. I, I do actually recall now Kevin was telling me some of that, that you did live in Belgium and... Uh... That background. I always found as well that over the years of speaking to different individuals, either head brewers or, or owners of breweries, I find that typically some of the best beers are made by people with that science, microbiology or biochemist um, backgrounds. Because there's some sort of understanding of, I guess, that, that level of chemistry in the beer, those, how the compounds work with each other to create flavors that you're able to drill down to another level for. So that... Uh, that explains a lot, particularly in the style that you guys ended up doing here at Upgrade with the, you know, all the mixed firm stuff and blending a lot, which essentially would, you need that knowledge. You can't just sure. kind of wing it. Yeah. I mean, you know, typical breweries, they, they work with one microorganism, uh, at least ideally. <laughs> you right. know, there are some breweries <laughs> that, that have unintentional uh, microbes involved as well. But, uh, but you know, we're, we're working with multiple different strains and I, I developed uh, these mixed cultures uh, they're all, they all derived from labs originally, uh, but those were purchased eight or nine years ago now. And, uh, they've been maintained by me since then. Uh, I had 16 different strains of Britannomyces in the mix, uh, about a half a dozen different Saccharomyces strains. Uh, I had Pediococcus from four different laboratories and, you know, from, from reusing, uh, our mixed culture and, and basically putting selective pressure on it by, you know, harvesting the, the yeast and bacteria from batches that I like, not harvesting it, not reusing it from, from batches that I, that I don't like, you know, over the years, our, our mixed culture has become not just our house culture, but it's become more like what I want, uh, Mm. for the fermentation of our beers. And so it's, it's very unique to us in that sense. Uh, you know, I could tell you what, what microbes I purchase. You could go out and buy them, throw them together and ferment a beer with it. And it's not going to taste like our beer. And part of that is just because, you know, it's, it's so far removed from a lab and it's, uh, it's really had a chance to evolve and mutate over time. And, uh, and it's, it's really pretty much our identity. I love that, man. I love that. That is awesome. Um, then Kevin, how did, yes, you're going to say something, please, sir. I just wanted to say something about the, the microbiology and, and something that you just touched on and both of you touched on. I think we talked on our last time we got on the podcast a little bit about getting into the industry and all that kind of stuff. I tell people at this point, go study microbiology, learn how to do lab work. If there's one thing our industry needs is more people who are science literate and can help out a brewery in abundance because there's so many brewers like I was that was self-taught and just learned from the ground up and had an apprenticeship and this, that, and the other and grew up in the industry. Then you're a head brewer. And even if you're getting all the books and reading and trying to get as much information as possible, someone like Matt comes along with his experience and teaches you everything, right? Not just the what to do, but why to do it. Mm. And and small tweaks that will really, really help you out. So I, I really recommend people to educate themselves as much as possible if you're in the industry or want to get into it. But going to school, 
getting your brewer going to school for brewing it, it's an extra step and it's it's it, there's no guarantee there's going to be jobs available i understand all that but it's such an important piece and there's very few breweries out there that couldn't use an extra person with scientific and laboratory knowledge great point really really great point i've heard uh, multiple sort of perspectives on that that some breweries don't care and they'll teach you on the job but then other breweries have told me that not only is it exactly what you were talking about, but also that uh, it shows you can stick to something. And if you're particularly, if you're willing to move from the States to Berlin to go and do the school out there, you know, the, the, the world renowned, like master brewer stuff, like that's even more valuable and essentially positions you. I mean, obviously not looking for a job there, Matt, but like if you needed to, you'd probably, you'd slide right in there if you want, you know, there's a lot of people, not everyone wants the stress of starting their own brewery, but they want to be able to ha- get, get the best possible positions and deliver the most value, which is what you're talking about, Kev. I, I love that. I mm-hmm. think that's really key for people to think about. Um, so with that said, how do you get – I'm going to pause some more. I thought we'd go for another one, but this is just fucking A1. Um, how how did you get involved in Oddbreed? I know we, we touched on it on the last podcast because we wanted to keep the story mostly for uh, for this one. Yeah, sometimes I've told these stories so many times that I never know exactly where I am. So maybe (laughs) this will end up being a little bit redundant for those uh, loyal listeners of yours. But Matt was somebody that I met pretty soon on when he moved to Florida, or at least when he started working at Bruzies, because it was one of the only breweries in our area. Right. So I got to know Matt through just the, the normal culture of going to the same bars. And, you know, as being in the industry, we struck up a friendship. He ended up being uh, the consultant at Funky Buddha when we were opening up the, the big production facility. From the little tiny one that we built by hand to the big production facility, Matt was brought on as our consultant because, quite frankly, myself and the two owners at the time had no idea what the we were doing right because we had never brewed on a commercial brewing system we had only done on the homebrew stuff and we knew the basic science and we made some decent beer but we needed somebody to say hey this is a 20 barrel brew house the 30 barrel brew house this is what you do you press this button you move this from here to here this is a cip cycle you're used to taking your fermenter apart and flipping it upside down and scrubbing it out no, we don't do that here. We have a, a, a clean in place ball. So uh, Matt was uh, invaluable to really teaching us and me about what being a commercial brewer was and upping our game and really the 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 success that brewery has had. I mean, listen, a million people contributed to that success, but without the foundation, where are you going to be, right? True. You, you build a house on a foundation. You got to have something strong in the beginning. So uh, – we, you know, we joked around. I remember a particular time because Matt would Matt was working a full time job, by the way, and right. would come in and help me out because I had no help. He'd come in and help me grain out at nine o'clock at night after working a, a twelve hour shift himself. So I remember one day we were exhausted. We're standing outside. We're going to our cars, and we're like, "Hey, man, you know, it'd be great if we could work together one day." You know, I really enjoyed this time and this, that, and the other. And uh, when Fast forward down the road, I'm at a different brewery. Matt's trying to open up his thing, and they needed a spot to produce wort. And we were one of the places because we haven't even gotten to Matt's process, which is so unique. But essentially, Oddbury doesn't have a brew house. 
Oddbreed right. is a fermentation factory, right? So they needed a place to produce wort and hey, I've got a place to produce wort. And not only am I a friend with Matt, but my three partners are all good friends with Matt. So why not offer our facility for that purpose? So that was the beginning of the relationship. And and then when Matt's partner wanted to get out of the partnership and move on to something else, uh, it was a, uh, they came to us and said, Hey, you guys want to buy into this? We can economies of scale. We can help out each other. We can do all this stuff. And it just ended, ended up being a fit. So now Matt produces pretty much every drop of beer at Barrel of Monks as far as his ward. I mean, I, he does collaboration beers all the time as well. And we, you know, try to cross utilize things for distribution. I, I take care of all the, the distributors and things of that nature, which is what I do for Barrel of Monks as well. And it's a, it's a good marriage. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, I think we did- we're working together, which was what, Which is what, back what to, I was always hoping for. Yeah. I love it. That's wicked. Um, amazing. Okay, so then let's maybe talk about the the, the process that you mentioned there. Um, you know, when you started Oddbreed there, Matt, like what was the intention for what you were trying to do? And then did it end up how you planned? Like, And, and then tell us about what that process is on how you make beer or how you go about producing the, the products you make. Yeah, so you know, we we started really with the focus being just making the best barrel aged beer that we could, and uh, you know, it sounds kind of simple, but uh, you know, we had limited access to uh, to funds. Uh, you know, I've been working as a as a brewer for the last fourteen years, so when you work as a, as a brewer, you generally don't have much money. <laughs> uh, that was my definitely my case as well. So. I, I, you know, got a few bank loans uh, so that I could have some equity in the business. Uh, I took on a couple of investors, and uh, the idea was to start, you know, bare bones, and with the the focus being 100% on the product. And so, I, I quickly, uh, you know, decided that I didn't want to have that expense of a brew house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to have a brew house someday, but uh, you know, I, I wanted to focus on on what was most important for me for me and. Uh, you know, that's, as you can see behind me, that's, that's all these French oak punchions. Uh, I had to get some stainless tanks, uh, some somewhat unusual stainless tanks for a brewery and that they're, uh, uh, typically referred to as tote tanks. They're mm-hmm. rectangular in shape. Uh, they're not conical. Hmm. They don't hold more than about two PSI of pressure. Uh, they are movable with a pallet jack, even though they're relatively large at 550 gallons. And, uh, None of my uh, tanks are glycol jacketed. Uh, you know, I, it took me a while to find the right spot because we're in South Florida and I needed a spot that was well insulated and preferably that had a good AC system in place. Uh, otherwise, I'd have to put one in place myself. Uh, mm. So I, I keep our, our tap room and barrel room here uh, temperature controlled at 69 degrees year round. And uh, that's, that's just for the, for the aging of the beer. So, you know, I, I had a few, a few different parameters that I had to work within. And, uh, you know, I tried to, like I said, minimize my costs, but, but really focus on the product and, uh, making sure that I was able to make the beers the way that I wanted to make them. Uh, and again, going back to what I said earlier, that means naturally conditioning all the beers, whether it be in bottles or in kegs. I do have another warehouse that's about three miles from our, our main location that, uh, that location is not open to the public. It's, it's really just a, a bare bones warehouse. It is temperature controlled as well. Um, but that's what we use for all of our bottles uh, that are conditioning as well as our kegs that are conditioning and uh, beer that goes out for distribution. I also store all of my aged hops over there. Uh, hmm. So initially when we first opened, 
we didn't have that warehouse. Uh, we got the warehouse, I want to say, after about six to eight months in business. Um, and initially, I was storing my aged hops at the, the tap room. Uh, if you've been around aged hops, you might know they have a very particular aroma. Uh, I actually like the aroma a lot, but a lot of people don't. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good idea for us to keep those over at the, the warehouse. Um, and we do use a lot of aged hops in our beer. Uh, okay. The, the beer that you're drinking right now has a significant amount of them. Okay. What is the benefit? I'm not sort of diverting here just because you brought it up, though, just quickly. What is the benefit of aged hops uh, versus fresh hops or pallet hops or whatever for a beer like this? So that's one of those questions. You know, you ask 10 brewers, you get 10 answers. Mm. Um, probably most American brewers would tell you that there's no point, that they're pointless. It's dumb. You shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, but uh, they, they, do, they do provide a particular type of uh, flavor and aroma. Uh, a lot of people generically just describe them as being cheesy. Um, I don't really uh, describe them that way. That's just personally not not the flavor profile that I get off of them. I would describe it more as sandalwood or cedar, uh, okay. almost like a like opening a, a fresh uh, uh, cigar box. Um, that that's that's my interpretation of it. You know, you talk to different people again, you'll get different answers. But um, but from a, a microbiology standpoint. Uh, the aged hops have essentially no uh, alpha acids left in them. Alpha mm. acids, when they when you boil them, they become isomerized. You get uh, what what is commonly known as, as an IBU, International Bitterness Unit, um, simply a, a method to try to um, uh, quanti- quali- uh, quantitatively say you know what what uh, the the bitterness level is in the beer. But anyway, uh, even though our, our hops don't really have any alpha acids, they do have beta acids when they oxidize, which also provides a type of bitterness. It's a little bit of a different bitterness uh, than typical hops, but it still has some antimicrobial activity. Uh, it still um, restricts the, the acidification by souring bacteria. Uh, and that's really kind of the main reason to put them in the beer. Uh, but I also think that, that hops, whether they're aged hops or, or uh, you know, regular fresh hops or pellets or, or whole cone, I do think that they, they provide some texture and body in the beer. And hmm. I don't think that that's something you can simulate without using a good bit of hops. Interesting. I love it. Kevin? I, I want to always make sure because Matt is uh, such an encyclopedia of beer knowledge. And I imagine that you have people listening at a wide range of experience and understanding of how a brewery runs. When uh, when Matt says we don't have a brew house at Oddbreed, he literally means he has to take one of his totes, put it in a trailer that he custom built, drive it from Oddbreed Wild Ales about 30, 20, 25 minutes to Barrel Amongst Brewing, brew a batch of beer. When the wart has been made after eight or nine hours, pump it into one of these tanks, drive it back to his facility, and then pump it into another tank from his uh, uh, from his trailer into a fermentation vessel of some sort or directly into barrels. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how all that works. I haven't been there to, to, to witness it. But that's a lot of steps mm-hmm. to get to where we are. And it's so important when Matt says flavor from fermentation, flavor from fermentation. Listen, he's building recipes. He's doing decoction mashing. He's doing some of these things to build flavor into the beer recipe. But that's where the rubber meets the road when you've got this amazing house mixed culture, when you've got the barrel flavor that's coming out of the beer that we're drinking. Part of it has been spent three years in barrel. 
three years yeah. before it even goes into your bottle and has to age another, you know, several months before it's ready to drink. So uh, the process of doing this is not common. <laughs> there are other breweries that do these kind of things, but they are the in the vast minority, not in the majority. Great, yeah, great it's not point. An efficient way to make beer. <laughs> no, want to make beer efficiently and you know make lots of money. Don't do it this way. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the the end product does speak for itself, though I must I must say. So thank you. The process itself. Now that so you you described it like that, Kevin, and I'd like to hear more about that from you, Matt. The only brewery I've been to that I think does a similar thing, or at least did, was Casey in um, Colorado. Is that correct? Because they were called Casey Blending. Are you familiar with them? That's right. They, yeah. Yes. Yeah. They they do actually have a brew house now. Now uh, they, do, they do. Yeah. Have conical tanks and a you know glycol uh, jacketed system and and you know all those those fancy tools that you know all other brewers brewers have except <laughs> me. <laughs> And, and, you know, uh, but soon. but no, so our our style of of beer production is heavily modeled after lambic blenders. So okay. you know there are multiple um, uh, blenders in in Belgium that that make really awesome authentic lambic, and they also don't have a brew house. Uh, you know they're they're uh, purchasing wort from from some of the other lambic producers, uh, doing the fermentation and blending, and then packaging back at their facility. And that's that's really where I got the idea from. It's this isn't uh, my own you know unique idea, uh, probably unique to Florida, and that uh, I don't know of any other brewery in Florida, or maybe even in the southeast of the United States, uh, that's operating like we are in, in in that sense. That that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, before we even get deeper into the process, uh, Kevin, do you want to should should we grab the next one? Let's do it. I think it's yeah. uh, it's time. I'm actually very interested because I haven't had this one either. Okay. Nice, get to get the first pop. Which one are we doing? The mezcal one, right? Yeah, we're gonna do the uh, the rare from the Rare Bottle Club. Oof! Can you give me that story? Tell us about the rare Rare Bottle Club out of the fridge. Um, little bottle. What, it's called mezcal bugs, right? Mezcal bugs. Yes. Mezcal yeah, Matt. Bugs. Why don't you go in? What's what's the Rare Bottle Club, Matt? Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so the the Rare Bottle Club is is really uh, it's it's a bottle club that's really meant for our most. Uh, you know, our, our biggest fans, best supporters, and all the beers that we offer to the Rare Bottle Club are exclusive to the Rare Bottle Club. So you can't find them on draft. You're not going to find them uh, available to purchase in bottles if you're not a club member. Uh, so it's it's basically a, a subscription model, uh, you know, where you, you pay up front uh, for the beer. It includes uh, six unique uh, club bottles. You get two bottles of each release. And then we provide other perks, like uh, we have... Some other beers that I'll, that I'll uh, make available for club members, like our vintage releases. Uh, some other beers that are just otherwise small batch, even too small of a batch to release to our bottle club. Uh, mm-hmm. I allow the bottle club members to purchase those. Um, but really, it's, it's a way for me to try to experiment um, you know, and hopefully make great beers. But beers that are maybe a little bit more unusual. And also uh, beers that are oftentimes limited in uh, what I can do from a production standpoint. Meaning uh, that, you know, sometimes I, I have access to pretty interesting barrels, but I can only buy one or two of them because that's all that, that you know, I have access to. Uh, right. Sometimes it's, it's using a type of local fruit that I can only get a certain quantity of. And so it's going to be a relatively small batch and I make that, uh, you know, a special rare bottle club beer. But, uh, but these are, are essentially, um, you know, our most special beers that I'm making, the ones that have aged 
either the longest or that are the most unique um, beers that oftentimes can't be reproduced. I actually mm-hmm. purposefully try to make beers for this club that even if I wanted to reproduce, I wouldn't be able to. That's awesome. So it's very, very intentional, top to bottom. I, I want to talk about this beer forever, Matt. I, I, this is su- such a unique nose, such a unique flavor profile. I, yeah. I, I'm not really that familiar with mezcal, but there's all this vanilla, this, this really intense spice character. And I mean like peppery spice. Yeah. Um, the description smooth, is amazing. It's smooth as all hell. It's got the nice balance of acidity and sweetness. I, uh, I think I'm in love. <laughs> I really dig this beer. It's um, so this the, the base beer for this beer is called Artistic Bugs. Uh, okay. This is the second batch of it. Uh, we actually haven't released the second batch of Artistic Bugs uh, just yet. Okay, uh, we'll be doing that probably in January or February of next year. But wow. it's it's brewed as a strong golden wild ale. It's fermented just with our mixed culture of wild yeast and bacteria. It's not blended from any other beers. Uh, the hops on this are um, actually. Um, and, and you can't really taste it in this mezcal version, but they're they're actually it's, this is actually a pretty hop forward beer. Okay. And the hops that I chose are Citra and Czech Saz, uh, which may sound like a little bit of an odd combination. Uh, the first batch that I did was with Motueka. Uh, okay. I couldn't get Motueka hops for this this round. Uh, it's a hard hard hop yeah, to uh, get. get your hands on. But uh, but I, I really feel like the the combination of Czech Saz and and uh, Citra works just as well, if not even better. Um, but it's, it's aged, uh, uh, I'd actually have to check on the bottle here, but I want to say it was aged right at about a year in barrels total. Uh, okay. First started in our, our French oak punchions and then was finished in uh, really unique mezcal barrels that were uh, constructed of French oak and first held California Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. And uh, that's very unusual for mezcal. Uh, mezcal and tequila are typically aged in used bourbon barrels, which are, of course, going to be heavy char American oak. Uh, so very different flavor profile. You still get some uh, some vanilla, and, uh, definitely some some oak tannins uh, from the barrels. Uh, but for me personally, I, I get kind of a uh, a spearmint, uh, honeydew melon, and especially caramelized pineapple. Uh, yes. And I should mention that when I transfer the beer into the mezcal barrels, I put in a good bit of organic blue agave nectar in each of the barrels. Okay, and, what does uh, that, that do? That ups the ABV. So it ups the ABV. Ah. It uh, it makes the beer just slightly drier, uh, which is just a relatively full-bodied beer for a wild ale. And uh, it also just, just really kind of enhances some of those, those mezcal-like notes. Uh, mm. You know, the, that spice, the, uh, for me, like I said, the, kind of that caramelized pineapple, honeydew melon sort of flavor. But uh, I really dig uh, these barrels. Um, because of this beer, I, I decided to order more mezcal barrels uh, for yeah. a different beer. And uh, I've used I've used tequila barrels a few times, and I, I've been happy with the beers that came out of those tequila barrels. Um, I don't feel the need to purchase tequila barrels anymore if I can keep buying mezcal barrels. What is the difference? Next, sorry, go, Kev. No, I was, I'm next time you buy, and now that we're just talking shop now, so that apparently we're not on the podcast anymore. Just, Matt, next time you buy mezcal barrels, get me a couple because I want to put three face triple on this like yesterday. Um, but I believe, oh, Craig, you were saying, um, what's the difference between mezcal and tequila? Is that what you're, where you're going with that? Yeah, just to paint the picture for people. Yeah, this is insane. So, yeah, just- uh, I'm I'm by no means an expert. Um, 
I, I actually got more into tequila because of a mutual friend that Kevin and I have who's very into tequila. Okay. Um, and because of that, I, I started kind of diving into mezcal just out of curiosity. My, my basic understanding is that uh, the agave uh, used is different. It's not the Weber blue agave plant, mm. which, uh, which can only be used for tequila. Uh, tequila also has to be produced in a certain region in Mexico. Uh, I believe that's the, the Jalisco uh, area. Uh, I could be getting that wrong, though. Um, Something like that. And, uh, and then also the, the distillation process, I believe, allows for a lot more variation with the production of mezcal than tequila. I believe tequila is a little bit more well-defined, but it's also the, uh, the cooking of the agave. And uh, the cooking of the agave is what imparts some of those smoky notes. Mm. Um, and I believe it's, it's over a direct flame um, or, or some type of stone oven is also uh, something I've heard of. Mezcal is, is, is a much more artisanal product than tequila, uh, as far as the way I understand it. And again, okay. I'm, I'm no expert, um, but that's, that's about the gist of what I can tell you about the differences between them. Works for me. Yeah, this is intense, and it's 12%, which is pretty damn dangerous, but I'm not getting any scarily so like indication whatsoever that it is that uh, that's the ABV. Is that you boys, I imagine, are getting the same? Uh, there's no heat here. This is, this is smooth as all hell. What's going on? What's, what's the magician here? What's, what's the magic? What's the wizardry? So, so I think one thing that a lot of brewers do wrong when they make high ABV beers is that they, they do what you're told in uh, brewing school, right? Which is you pitch a lot of yeast, you aerate really heavily, you throw a bunch of yeast nutrients at it, and you want to get that fermentation done as soon as possible. Mm. Uh, the longer that fermentation carries on, um, basically you're, you're, you're going to be nutrient depleted, uh, and then you run in, you run the risk of having a stuck fermentation, uh, basically a fermentation that, that finishes too early and you have too many residual sugars that haven't been fermented out. Yeah. Uh, because I'm fermenting this with just our mixed culture and I know the way that it behaves, uh, I know that it's slow working, I, I take a little bit of the opposite uh, uh, production process and that I want to encourage a long, slow fermentation because mm. by encouraging a long, slow fermentation, I'm not going to get those fusel alcohols. I'm not going to get those other higher alcohols that are going to be produced during a fermentation that is extremely vigorous, that gets very warm, that builds up a lot of heat. Um, this, this fermentation takes you know, a few months before it gets up to 9% alcohol. Um, and that's, that is intentional. I'm not pitching a lot of our mixed culture to it. I'm not aerating. I'm not giving it any yeast nutrients. I'm basically trusting my mixed culture that it's happy and healthy. And uh, I, I pitch it into the wort and I... I, you know, just, just give it time. You got to be patient with these kind of beers. Mm, definitely. This is, yeah, man, this is definitely something special. And I also, I appreciate as well that it's in uh, what one could argue is a single serve bottle as opposed to a shareable one. Like even though <laughs> I almost crushed that entire, the first bottle um, beforehand, cause that shit is just insane. Yo, you, yeah, I, I'm about the same. <laughs> Just a tiny little bit more. And, and like this is this is crazy. This is just such a unique beer because I'm reading the description and you mentioned like the, the caramelized pineapple. It even says here cucumber, spearmint, campfire, smoke, and the spiced agave. I mean, that's just such a – I was reading that uh, the other day, just checking in. I'm just curious and want to have a look at these bottles. I was like, my God, like what – like those – that combination of flavor profile is almost unheard of. 
Um, I imagine some of those other ones will come out as, as it uh, warms a bit here. But this is just this is this is crazy, and this is not something. This was bottled on uh, April 9th, the day before my birthday. Look at that uh, this year. So it's six months in the bottle. Uh, when did this one come out, by the way? Uh, we released that maybe two months ago, month month and a half, okay. two months ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. What's the volume? There's also another. There go. Please. No, there's also there's also another thing about the Rare Bottle Club. Uh, you mentioned special beers, but how many beers do you actually get when you sign up for the Rare Bottle Club? Like, how many different special releases? Great question. So it's six it's six releases, and you get two bottles of each beer. So the idea being that you drink one when it's released and you decide what you want to do with the other one, how long you want to hold on to it, or if you don't want to hold on to it, if you want to drink it immediately. Love that. I think there's something to, to be said about that too. The uh, I love the idea of having it fresh so you get to try it when it's new and then you can sit on it for a year or two or whatever it might be and hopefully you can remember the difference. Uh, I'm sure you probably will for for these type of beers. I'm, you know, These are the type of things people will drink every day. Maybe they are. But I imagine that they're more memorable than the average beer, meaning I need two implements to open them. So it's a, you know, it's an experience once again, like you were talking about before, Kev, with the tap room, uh, to to bring these these beers to the attention of people to really understand what's going on. I love it. I think this is this is awesome. So how many of these do you? How many? I'm not sure if you said this already, but how many of these beers do we drop per year? Are they like quarterly? Uh, so or? It, so. It's six beers that are included with with the membership uh, before we we then move on to the next edition. Uh, I try to keep it at about a year, but uh, you know I, I I do a good bit of time. <laughs> I spend a good bit of time explaining to our, our customers that you know I'm not going to give you a hard date of when this club is going to end because it depends on the beer. And so gotcha. you know we just wrapped up our, our third edition of the club. I released uh, three bottles, uh, three of the beers um, within I want to say four or five months. And then uh, the final three beers were almost all released within the same uh, last couple months of the of the club. Uh, the club wrapped up, uh, I believe, in about thirteen months. Um, the previous edition of the club wrapped up in about eleven months. So it really just kind of depends on when the the beers I feel like are ready. You know, a lot of other breweries that do a bottle club, uh, somewhat similar structure to what we do. They're they're typically force carbonating the beers, and so those bottles are ready really on the day that they're bottled. Um, you know, whereas for the most part, um, I'm holding onto our beers for three to four months, sometimes as long as nine months, uh, before I release them, you know, again, the the beer that we tried earlier, I bottled that up in April and I'm not selling it until the end of November. Uh, so it, it kind of depends on, on the beer. Um, but you know, for the most part, they're going to continue to get better with age. Um, but, uh, the carbonation is there usually within a couple of weeks. But, uh, but the flavor just, you know, really improves uh, once it's been sitting in the bottle for, for at least about three months. Okay. Do you guys do a, um, like a periodic, you know, test? You break out a bottle and, and you know, some of the staff go through it and be like, ooh, is it ready yet? Or how, how does that process look like? It's like, how do you know when a beer like this is ready? Yeah, yeah, you got to open it up and taste it. You know, that's that's a part of the fun of it. Uh, Tough job. You know, I, I I generally have an idea of how long the beer will need in the the bottle. Um, you know, even before I put it into a bottle, mm-hmm. um, I didn't have you know the the best idea of that all the time at, at first when we first opened. But uh, you know, after after now just about four years in business, 
there are certain beers that I know when I'm bottling them, okay, this one's going to need some time. You know, the, the beer that I just bottled last week uh, was based, it was a, a blend of three beers with uh, about 85% of the blend, really the star of the blend, is a two-year-old version of Past and Future Saison. Past and Future is uh, what I refer to as our flagship Saison, even though we've only released four batches of it in four years. Um, but it's, uh, it's a Saison that uh, is brewed um, and fermented more like an old world Saison. And what I mean by that is that it's obviously with our, with our mixed culture, it's aged in barrels. It has some acidity. It has a lot of similarities to Lambic. Uh, mm. It also has a decent bit of unmalted wheat in it, which is a characteristic of, of Lambic. And it also has a good bit of aged hops as well as fresh Czech sauce added at the middle of the boil. And then it, again, at Whirlpool. Um, but but that particular beer, um, you know, when I'm when I'm aging it for a year and it becomes just past and future, that beer is usually ready in about uh, two and a half to three months of bottle conditioning. With with this particular version, because the the beer spent uh, two years in barrels, there isn't as much active yeast and bacteria in solution. Uh, the beer comes out of our barrels looking essentially like a filtered pilsner. Um, hmm. You know, I, I added in two other beers each of which had only been aged for six months in barrels with the objective of being able to uh, not just balance out some of the flavor that's in that, that two-year version of past and future and add some complexity, but most importantly to add some, some younger Brett cultures. And uh, Britannomyces is really the star of the show when it comes to our, our house mix culture, the flavor that we get. And it's important to me to get some, some healthy uh, Britannomyces cells in the in the bottle because that's really what helps the beer uh age well but it also helps it evolve in the bottle it creates a more complex and interesting flavor um but that beer is going to need to sit for a while for all those flavors to kind of balance together and come together it's not as simple as you know taking three beers on draft and blending them in your glass as cold carbonated beer and saying this one's a winner we we got it right here it's uh it there's really the and, and this is what I think has taken the most time for me to learn how to um, uh, I don't know that I would say get good at because I'm I'm still learning but uh, but you know learning how a beer is going to develop in the bottle is uh, is hard um, you know I remember years ago I was attending the the Sheldon Festival in St Petersburg and uh, John Van Roy from from Cantillon was over there and he was doing a little demonstration where you could blend your own Lambic, you know? Hmm. And so he brought over some one, two and three year old Lambic. And, uh, the, the idea was that here, make your, make your own goose blend. And then we try some, uh, you know, of his goose and it's like, well, what I blended tastes nothing like this, you know? And you're telling me these are all the, the beers that you used to blend this beer. Uh, mine tastes what I just blended in my cups tastes completely different. And part of that is just, you know, a, the, the beer that he had, of course, is carbonated, but, but most importantly, it's it's that evolution in the bottle. It's uh, it's how the beer changes once you mix it together. Once it has time to uh, to sit in that vessel with with uh, the bottle conditioning yeast, um, that that's really what what I think makes a, a really interesting product. That's that can be tough to predict. But if you if you have a, a certain methodology, a certain procedure that you're using, uh, and you use that more or less consistently, you can you get to the point where I guess you can you get a better idea of what to expect. Hmm. That's a really great point. Yeah. It's not just about what just throwing things in the glass. Like it has to live together for months. That's right. Months yep. In the bottle and actually change. Just, just for a reference, like do you check once a month? 
Do you check every other week, like pop a bundle and see how it's going? Like what's, how often would you need to monitor the beers to so see how really, they go? It really kind of depends on the beer and it mm-hmm. also depends on what kind of timeline I'm working under. Uh, okay. You know, I, I try to stay a good bit ahead. So, you know, in August I, I had finished bottling up all the beers that I'm releasing this year. Uh, so the beers that I'm, that I'm bottling up right now, those are beers that I'm planning to sell in February and March. Um, certain beers that I know are going to be ready faster, I'll, I'll, you know, maybe don't have as much patience for them. And I, I want to, I want to check in on them and see how they're doing. Um, but I don't, I don't check them on a weekly basis. I, I feel like that's, that's unnecessary and wasteful. Um, you know, sometimes when I have a really high ABV beer, I will check it after two or three weeks to make sure that it's developing some carbonation. Uh, just because I, I don't want to end up with a, a beer that's still that I intended to have carbonation. I do make some beers that, that are intentionally still. Hmm. Um, but, you know, most of the beers that I make are relatively highly carbonated. Okay. And uh, that, you know, like I said, is fortunately something that, uh, that that happens in just a few weeks. It's it's really the, the overall kind of uh, balance of flavors that, that takes a little bit longer to, uh, to come into check. And I don't typically have too many off flavors, uh, during the bottle conditioning phase. Some breweries do, uh, I do occasionally get some sulfur, uh, that's produced in some of my older beers. And that's the, the one flavor I've found to, uh, take longest to dissipate. And so, uh, it's a little embarrassed to say that, that, uh, at our third anniversary, I, uh, I didn't release our third anniversary beer. I didn't actually release it until January. And uh, that was because that beer had had developed some sulfur, and uh, it wasn't an obscene amount, but it was just kind of lingering, and it took a long time for it to go away. And uh, after I want to say it was about six months or so in the bottle, I finally finally released the beer, and it was great. I was uh, I was really happy with how that one came out, but I was uh, I was also disappointed that that I I packaged that beer too late uh, to be ready in time for our anniversary. If there's one thing I will say is that Matt Manthe does not compromise. <laughs> not at all. When when a, when a beer is not good, a beer is not good. Uh, there, uh, there's a lot of people sitting around. I, I remember being in another brewery that I worked at, standing around a bright tank and tasting a beer that was supposed to go out to distribution in 48 hours or whatever it is, and none of us liked it, and all of us thought it wasn't good, but we had a bunch of outstanding orders for it, so – God damn it, that beer is going to go out. We're just going to have to figure out how to spin it. Uh, Matt's the kind of person that's like, well, I guess this beer uh, was kind of a waste. We'll put it down the drain. We'll start over again. I know that doesn't happen very often, uh, but Matt's a, Matt's a stickler when it comes to that kind of stuff. I see yeah, that. you got you got to make good beer. You know, if, if you're going to make a beer that takes so long and so much effort um, – you know, we've, we've had some, uh, some customers who have come in and they say, well, I don't want to buy, you know, such and such beer. It's $30 a bottle. How do I know if it's any good? And, uh, we had a, a bartender who was working at the time and, uh, she told him, well, when was the last time you had a bad beer from us? And, uh, you know, I was, I was really happy of course that she said that, but, um, uh, but you know, you, you have to gain the customer's trust and, uh, I don't, I don't feel comfortable trying to sell a beer that, I think is bad. That's not to say that I'm a hundred percent in love with every beer that I make. Um, but when I'm, when I'm making beer and this probably sounds very elementary, but when I'm making beer, my, my first goal is always to make a beer that doesn't have off flavors. My second goal is to make a beer that has balance and hopefully has some drinkability and complexity. Everything after that is, is just, you know, 
sprinkles on, on top. It's, uh, uh, you know, you, I, I think that, that so many breweries try to achieve all these other things before they, they cover the basics. And uh, with, with making mixed culture barrel-aged beers, uh, just, just getting things into balance and without off flavors is pretty hard to do, actually. And uh, that's, that's in part where blending comes in. But, uh, you know, recognizing when a beer is bad and deciding this is it, I got to move on. I, I can't fix this. Uh, it takes some, some discipline and it's not, it's not something that's easy to do. But uh, I think what's worse is trying to convince yourself that a mediocre product is good enough. Great. It's well, the worst. <laughs> yeah. Particularly, in, like you said, because they are at a higher price point for a good reason. And, uh, you know, I guess that's a lot of pressure on you, but at the same time, this is what you do. So it's, you know, it's, I guess, double-sided, but it's, uh, one of the, something you said earlier that was interesting is that you make still beers. And I always associate with this, you know, type of wild beers. I, and both of these beers so far have been quite, what I would describe as like sharply carbonated, which is, in my opinion, not completely on style and expected. These, excuse me, hence the burps. The, um, the still side of things. T- tell us about that. That's actually quite fascinating that I don't recall, aside from cask beer, which um, I think I need to go to the UK to really experience uh, again and uh, understand that every time I've had cask beer, I'm just like, this is bubbly, warm, like weird shit. Like it's, it's not really for me, but I imagine that there's something I don't understand there as opposed to you know, it being inherently not good. So what's the deal with the, with the still wild beers? That's fascinating. Kev. Well, well, Matt's going to crush that question, but just so you know, you have one. The, uh, the tall, skinny bottle is a still beer. So okay. uh, when you try that, uh, what Matt's going to describe, you're going to get to experience it. I'm glad you told me that. That's awesome. Because then I might be like, oh, no, my bottle was something, even though it was wax sealed. Because then it actually is almost not possible. Okay. Yep. Matt. Yeah. So uh, the, the quick, simple answer is that when I make a really strong beer, uh, like say, you know, above 14% alcohol, I can't really get it to carbonate in the bottle. Uh, because again, I'm, I'm doing natural conditioning. Okay. Um, I don't have equipment to force carbonate a beer. And even if I did have the equipment to force carbonate a beer, I don't have a bottle filler that's capable of filling uh, beer or any other product that's already carbonated. I'm using a wine filler that's designed for still beer. Mm. Um, but aside from all that, I think that when you make, uh, especially really strong wild ales, I don't feel that they need any carbonation. Uh, I've also made some other beers uh, recently that, that we haven't released yet uh, that are more on the, the moderate side of alcohol. Uh, but I also don't feel that some of those need carbonation. And uh, part of that is to enhance some of the, the wine-like characteristics. It also has to do with, uh, you know, trying to create more balance in the beer. So as, as I mentioned, you know, most of the stuff that I make is actually pretty highly carbonated. Um, I carbonate some of our, our farmhouse ales, our saisons, even higher than, uh, than the two beers that you tried, uh, simply because I feel like the carbonation helps bring out more aromatics. It brings out more flavor. It's the same reason that a lot of Belgian beers are really highly carbonated. You know, one thing that Kevin and I definitely have in common is that we love high carbonation. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, you know, creating some of these beers that, that kind of mimic the character of a red wine uh, that have a, a lower level of carbonation or even no carbonation at all, 
it helps to highlight some of the uh, the oak characteristics, uh, some of the malt, uh, especially. I've I've done uh, some some sour red ales, sour brown ales um, that have low carbonation uh, or no carbonation. I did an oud brune that was aged in Pinot Noir barrels. Uh, it was a little higher ABV. It was a, it was a little over nine percent. It was also had plums inside the uh, the Pinot Noir barrels, mm-hmm. and I served that completely still. And uh, that beer also had a little bit of a more aggressive uh, acidity to it. Um, traditionally, Oud Brun and Flanders Red Ales have a, a higher level of acetic acid, uh, which does have some vinegar-type notes to it. Uh, yeah. That's to be expected. And in, in, in the case of those styles, it's considered pleasant. The thing is, you don't want it to verge into that, that solventy character where you're getting all that, that ethyl acetate. Um, that's, that's not pleasant. But I've found that when you serve those beers at a warmer temperature and without carbonation, they they really highlight those those nice malty notes without having uh, the carbonation bubbles really kind of add to the uh, to the acidic bite of those beers because those beers have a little bit of an acidic bite. I feel like that can kind of uh, be used in place of carbonation. If that makes any sense, it does. And when you said that it replicates wine, that actually makes a lot more sense to me as well. Particularly based on the conversation we had earlier about these beers maybe being similar-ish to natural wine, which I think from my understanding are, oh, of course, they're not carbonated at all. I mean, you can get some wine that's like mildly carbonated. Um, sure. I forgot the style, so that's what M. This is one particular one we usually get here. But, um, okay, no, that makes sense. So it's almost like, um, would it, I imagine it would maybe trip somebody out a bit. Like, oh, I'm particularly expecting this beer, and, and if they've had other beers from you guys and they, and they pop it. Like, if you didn't tell me, I, I genuinely would have been – surprise or thought I got a, a, a bad bottle or something, even if it tasted great, I might've been like, why is that? So I'm really glad. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin, for telling me that. Um, but the, I guess the experience when, when you're drinking it, is it, do you think it, it would help the drinker, particularly from a beer drinker drinking these styles that would expect carbonation to approach it like it's a wine as in mental? That's, that's my hope. Yeah, that's my hope. I mean, it, so I do write on the bottle that it serves still, uh, on all of our beers, we have a uh, uh, little uh, temperature range that we suggest the, the consumer drink at. Um, in the case of the still beers that I have, I intentionally package them in different bottles than what we use for all of our other carbonated beers. Okay. And I'm typically using wine bottles, uh, whether it be a Bordeaux or a Burgundy-style bottle. Um, the, uh, the beer that, that you have, the Reality is Obscure, um, that's a, a bottle that's more commonly used for ice wine or mead, um, but it's still not a, a beer bottle. It's not a bottle that's designed to handle pressure. Uh, it actually can't take a cap either. Uh, you'll notice if you take that wax off, it's it's just a, a, a natural wine cork underneath it. Mm. I, I also want I also want to throw this out is that you know uh, many of us know if you're in the beer community about like Sam Adams Utopias. Yes, which uh, came out years ago, which was a flat beer that uh, meant that I believe they came out, or at least is in the culture that it, mm. it almost tastes like a brandy. It's meant to be served in a snifter. You can reseal it, and that's what a couple hundred dollars a bottle. Yes. So, I think that the stuff that I've had, and, and Matt's made a good amount of it, and I've had one of the batches of uh, one of the treatments, uh, barrel age versions, I should say, of the reality is obscure. He's done some other things of that before. 
I akin those flavor profiles at 17, 18%, very similar to that kind of utopia. So there's a, a, a yeah. little bit of the, the brandy kind of flavor profile. There's dark fruit. Uh, there's a little bit of oxidation, nuttiness going on in some of these. So that's the other exciting part about it. Actually, I, when we sent that beer to you, I was like, man, I don't know if we're going to get through all these beers. It's like, well, the good thing about that one is if we crack it, we can try it. And I don't have to drink it all that night, right? It's true. Because yeah. the carbonation is not going to go away. I would throw it in the fridge because I don't want it to oxidize too much. And I want to drink within 24 hours, maybe even do one of those, you know, pump wine things to get the oxygen out. But you can treat that like a wine and you can share it in a, in a, in a brandy snifter or a wine glass. And it's a, it's a really cool experience. That, okay. Amazing. Yeah, to me. Yes, ma'am. To me, those those beers, um, the the reality is obscure, and I've I've done a few different versions of them. Um, but to me, the the flavor profile is most similar to port. Um, I mm. couldn't really describe it as being similar to any other beer. Um, you know, it's and and I'm not saying it's exactly like port. It definitely has some some differences. For one, it's it's not going to be nearly as full bodied as port. Uh, part of the reason that the ABV is so high on that is because it is actually relatively dry. Um, but it has tons of oak character. I mean, it's spent three years in barrels. So, um, but it, the, the oxidative, oxidative character, uh, that Kevin was mentioning is to me very similar, uh, to what I get from port. Interesting. For sure. And when you drink it, do you drink, um, do you have like, do you fill up like a stemmed glass like this of it? Or is it better where it's like a smaller glass or you have a couple of ounces at a time? Like, I think you can do it either way. I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, so when I was living in Europe, they, they refer to products like that as a, a digestif. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's like an after dinner drink. You, you want a few ounces of it. You know, you don't want to drink that 375 milliliter bottle by yourself. Okay. Uh, or maybe you do, uh, if you, if you like to live really, <laughs> I do. but, uh, <laughs> it's not what I would recommend. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like even at, at a 375 ml, I, I feel like that's, that's a bottle that you split, you know, with, with at least a few other people. Uh, it's very intense in flavor. Uh, it's something that you want to sip on. You know, you can pour it in a larger glass if you want, um, uh, you know, depending on, on what you prefer. I, I think uh, that, that helps to aerate it a little bit more. Um, you might, might notice some, some better uh, depth in the beer. Um, but it, it definitely should not be served cold. Uh, and that's the, the one thing that I've, I've really tried to explain to people. And so many people say, oh, yeah, well, I'll put it in my fridge and then I'll, I'll take it out for 10 minutes before I open it. Yeah. And I say, no, what you need to do is store it at room temp and then put it in your fridge for five to 10 minutes and then open it. Uh, it really just it, it, the flavors are more muted when it's when it's cold. Right. Interesting. That's fascinating because I, 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 I'm trying to think aside from utopias, Kevin, that's, that's the perfect uh, comparison i i've had utopias but like six years ago and i remember it being exactly like that brandy slash port like you had an ounce of it like i'm sipping on a scotch or whiskey or something at the end you know know, there's like little tiny little tulipy kind of glasses um so it sounds like that kind of vibe i like that though i mean that's a I guess this is what makes it interesting for you guys that you're able to create some sort of, uh, you know, like, like the first beer we had, which is, I was going to say light. It's not even really that light. It was still six points on, but you know, it's a nice effervescent, very fruit forward stone fruit, apricot type of beer. And then something that's like 12% that tastes 6% that's extremely dangerous. And then you've got these other beers that are, 
you know, essentially still almost, like you said, I'm, I'm wearing Montreal and Quebec is, uh, is French. So, you know, we have all the digestive and aperitif and all that stuff here. Um, they love that at, at restaurants and things like that. So it all kind of, uh, that, that makes sense. And it, it, like that really diversifies what you guys are able to, to offer as far as a, a producer of these types of products, which are absolutely, like we've said the whole time, it's not the norm, hence Oddbreed. Um, is that where the name came from, by the way? Where, where was the name from? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, part of it is that, you know, there's so many damn breweries out there now that uh, trying to come up with a unique <laughs> name is not easy. No. Right? And so it was like, well, well, what do we do? It's like, well, we, we do different stuff. Uh, we're, you know, it, compared to other producers, we're kind of an odd breed. And so that uh, that's kind of where the, the name came from. Um, one thing uh, going back to the, that reality is obscure uh, beer that, that I think is really unique about it is that it does have some acidity to it. Okay. It's not going to be uh, as sour as the, the other two beers that you tried. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's somewhat noteworthy in that um, that beer, you know, it's, it's not like a, a kettle sour or it doesn't have any uh, actual acid that's dosed into the blend. Um, it's just our, our mixed culture uh, from the very beginning. And uh, it's a very long, slow fermentation. Uh, similar to, to mezcal bugs. And because of that, it doesn't produce many fusels. But, uh, you know, typically, like uh, in the first beer that you had from us, uh, the oddities and outliers, I had a good bit of hops to that. And uh, the effort of restraining the souring bacteria so that it doesn't produce too much acidity before the beer has had a chance to develop some bread character and otherwise uh, finish the bulk of, of fermentation. Uh, with Reality is Obscure, it's the it's complete opposite and that, that beer has very few hops. It's only about five IBUs. And the purpose of that was that in making a beer so high in ABV, I knew that, you know, the, the souring bacteria that's in our beer, that's really in, you know, in any sour beer, it has a limit of ABV tolerance, typically somewhere around eight to 10%, mm. uh, which means that, you know, if you have a beer that's, that's say 10%, you drop some souring bacteria into it, it's not going to sour the beer. It's just not going to do anything it's not going to die immediately, but it's not going to metabolize and it's not going to produce acidity. So for that beer, uh, I, I had to produce the acidity first and then develop, then produce the alcohol after. And so, uh, it's a very, very long, slow fermentation. When I put that beer into barrels, it was only about eight or 9% alcohol. And, uh, you know, I put it into the barrels kind of just trusting our, our mixed culture and hoping that I was going to end up with a, a good drinkable product, you know, years down the road. That's, uh, I mean, and I guess that's a really good way to think about all of this because even when you're saying that uh, some of these beers have been held in barrels for three years, you've been open for four. So literally, you've been open for that first year and you were making beers for the fourth year back then. That's right. Yeah. How? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to do from a business standpoint, you know? Yeah. Uh, especially because the, the, first, the first year and a half to two years that we were in business – we're filling way more barrels than we're emptying. And, you know, that's, that's not good for cash flow. No. Um, you know, and it's, uh, so it's, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, if you want to open an efficient and profitable brewery, don't do it this way. Don't do it that way. Uh, you know, get, get yourself a, a big brew house, plenty of uh, warehouse space in a cheap part of town, and crank out, uh, uh, you know, a beer for the masses that, uh, that you can offer at a lower price point. Uh, but then, and then get into this stuff. 
That's right. Yeah. <laughs> eventually yeah. <laughs> eventually really care about it. You know, I, I think one of the things that I think about when I think about odd breed, and I think Matt, you've driven this point home so many times. And with the answering these questions is that everything has a place. Mm. Everything has a purpose. And so many people, when they think about sour beers, I mean, I've been there. I've been at breweries where it's like, well, we put this beer in a barrel. We thought we were going to get one thing. Turns out it went sour because we didn't clean it properly or there was some bugs in there. Now we got a sour beer and it doesn't taste bad. So let's put it out there. Uh, that is not what Odd Breed does. You know, everything from age tops to the, you know, developing the acidity before we develop the alcohol, every single thing in this process is designed, thought of beforehand to reach a, a goal in the future. And it's something that I've respected with Matt. I mean, Matt's, Matt takes this project when he makes a, a Dortmunder, which isn't sour at all, right? When he's looking at developing these recipes, there's always a purpose, there's a method to the madness. And if you don't do it with these styles of beer, you're not going to have drinkable beer. Mm-hmm. And you can make a quaffable, drinkable kettle sour much, much easier. But to do this, it, it just, it, I don't know, if I were in your place, Matt, I don't think I'd sleep well. I'd be worrying about those barrels and everything all the time. I'd, I'd, I'd be the most neurotic person in the world. You got to trust the process, man. It's here <laughs> you anyway. Believe in the science and trust the process. <laughs> it's easier said than done, though. Are you guys believe making- Believe in the science, trust the process. I like that. So that could be a good episode name, too. I'll write that one down. Mm. Um, do you guys make a dope Mundo? Because that's, that's dope that's referring to something that that i'm sorry matt that's referring to a beer that matt made when he was working at bruzies uh, as the head brewer which is one of my favorite styles of all time that i still say is one of my favorite beers matt's ever made and uh i've now lionized it so much that it's the greatest beer of all time (laughs) it happened like seven years ago and matt probably doesn't even remember making it anymore yeah even if i make a beer better than that one it won't really be better than that one so it can't possibly yeah, that, be. That was a, that was a fun beer. Um, yeah, yeah. I, so a lot of people ask me, you know, what what do you normally drink um, if you're not drinking Odd Breed? And and the truth is, most of what I drink is traditional German lagers. Uh, that's just what I enjoy the most. And uh, I've also found that uh, uh, developing a good palate for traditional German lagers has helped me better identify some of the unique flavors in my own beer. Um, I also really enjoy drinking traditional Belgian Lambic uh, in South Florida. It's not the easiest thing to find. And when you can find it, it's, it's never uh, well-priced, um, as it shouldn't be. You know, it, uh, uh, it, Lambic is a very expensive, uh, time-consuming uh, product, you know, similar to, to what I'm making. And so um, it, I think that the beers that I make and Belgian Lambic uh, should also be consumed on special occasions. I don't mm. really consider them to be everyday types of beers. I don't drink my beer every day, uh, but I, I really respect a, a good, well-made German lager, preferably one that's pale in color and low to moderate Navy V, and something that I could drink several glasses of if I wanted to. Um, Dortmunder is, is kind of that style. Uh, I've actually spent a lot more time in my brewing career making uh, German lagers than I have uh, making wild ales. Would you ever do? Would you ever do anything like that for Odd Breed, or is that probably too far outside of the 
you know, the, the spec. Uh, you know, it would be a little bit of a different project and I would need a, a different space. I mean, so, you know, one thing that's, that's unique to, to our space is that it was set up from the beginning to be just a wild ale brewery, uh, you know, with the focus being mixed culture fermentation or spontaneous fermentation and 100% barrel aging. So that's not to say that I couldn't do something else. And I'd, I'd love to, to make some other styles as well. Uh, but I, I simply don't have the infrastructure in place for that. You know, right. uh, you go to a typical brewery and for the most part, you know, they've, they've got a brew house, they've got their cylindroconical tanks and they can make, you know, just about any style that the other breweries in town are making. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think uh, from a business standpoint, that's actually a, a genius idea and that it offers a lot of flexibility. Uh, most of the equipment that I purchased is equipment that's unique to the wine industry. You know, I had to, I had some of the, uh, the vendors telling me that they didn't want to sell me certain things that I wanted to buy because I'm a brewery right. and I'd have to explain to them, well, why do you care that I'm a brewery? I, I've, I'm telling you that I'm ready to buy this thing. It's in, it's in my, uh, my, my checkout cart, you know? Um, <laughs> and they're like, well, you don't, we don't think you know what you're doing with it. And it's like, well, What's, what? I, it's not your I think problem. I'll figure it out, you know? But yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not your problem. Even if I do it wrong, you yeah. know, uh, why do you really care? But, um, but you know, the, the point being is, is just that this, this project for, for odd breed, it's, it's really a passion project. Uh, there's a lot of intention behind what we do here. Uh, that's not to say that that isn't the case at other breweries as well, but because other breweries have a lot more flexibility with how they can make their beer, the styles that they can make, the branding that they, they have, uh, the type of consumer they go after, you know, I, I work in a, in a relatively narrow niche and the people that are into our beer, fortunately are, are really into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've got some, some great fans and I'm, I'm definitely appreciative of them. Um, but you know, I, I need those guys. That's, uh, that, that's our bread and butter. We're, uh, we're, we're not going to, you know, serve our, our beer at, at a, a football stadium. You know, it's, it's not going to be, uh, the number one seller at total wine, you know, or some other, uh, corporate, uh, beer store, liquor store, whatever. Um, it's, it's a very niche product and, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have to operate within, um, uh, the confines that we already defined for ourselves from from day one before we even opened. That's fair. Uh, you, you set that expectation and you're delivering on that. And, you know, that's really what that's about. At the same token, like, I guess it's uh, kind of almost like, you know, Kevin getting involved and the Barrel of Monks partners getting involved with, with you on the odd breed side. I mean, it's something you're doing, something that they weren't able to do from from their end. So there's there's always like uh, you know like you said if you want to do something like the lagers it would probably need to be another project a different facility. Have you have Barrel of Monks and Oddbreed? And I imagine so. But have you guys collaborated on anything at all? Even if it's like maybe something on the Barrel of Monks side where it's like Oddbreed coming in and make you could I don't know if it's like off brand, but you know you guys could go and make a, a Hellas Lager or something like that. That specific thing we've actually talked about quite a bit. And we haven't pulled the trigger on that yet, but we did start a series. Actually, we started a series of collaboration before we had any ownership in Oddbreed uh, okay. called Barrel of Funk. And well, that's we sick. Released, that is sick. <laughs> we released yeah, We actually started that before Oddbreed even opened. Um, the, yeah. uh, the first batch was, was uh, released, I want to say, at least a year, if not even a year and a half uh, before Oddbreed opened. So, yeah, we've, we've been working uh, – 
as Kevin mentioned earlier, you know, we've, we've all been, been good friends for a while now. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> no, so Bear La Funk, we've done four different versions of it. And this is actually a really good, uh, this is, this illustrates a point that I made a little bit earlier about quality and, uh, and QAQC, which is we made four different batches and we kind of like the idea was to flip flop like this year we'll make it next year. Odd breed will kind of make it and, and distribute it or sell gotcha. it in their tap, tap room. And we got to number five and we made a beer and I think the beer was really, really good. The problem was, is that in the bottle conditioning process, it didn't bottle condition oh. and it developed a little bit of all flavors. And we were kind of sitting there and Matt had, Matt had only had one other or two other beers maybe in the history that did not bottle condition correctly. And we had a couple of those and we were kind of convinced that if you just leave this long enough, it's going to develop some carbonation. And it never really did. And not only did it not develop the carbonation we're looking for, but it developed a little bit of an off flavor. Mm. And eventually, you know, Matt kind of stepped up and said, listen, uh, this isn't what we're looking for. This is the exact compound that it has. This isn't a sellable beer. So we threw it in the trash. And uh, it was uh, Barrel of Funk 5. It was no more. So uh, we will be doing something in the near future. It's something actually Matt and I are overdue to talk about. But that project is still ongoing. And we have talked about doing some other things of a clean beer or a different line. But you know the complex, <laughs> the complexities of our production and mats and everything. Sometimes it's just easy to go. Hey, we'll talk about that next week, and yeah. next week becomes next month and next year. And hey, how about twenty twenty six? What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, man. I know the vibes, and it's it's an interesting situation that you guys are in because you know you got the Belgian stuff, but you guys do you guys do like non-Belgian stuff though, right? We talked about that last time. You guys don't it's not everything is mostly but not completely. We have used Belgian yeast in every single beer we've ever made. Okay, there we go. That doesn't mean that everyone is a Belgian style or a classic Belgian style. I've made an IPA. We don't call it a Belgian IPA because we kind of ferment at a lower temperature, mute some of those phenols and esters. So we're getting a little more outside of our comfort zone and doing some other kind of things. And we do some sour beers uh, from our, our barrels and things of that nature. But we really focus on that on that side. Gotcha. Okay. It almost sounds like there be, needs to be a third collaborative project, like you guys were kind of like you know, hinting at that something that you both can do something completely different, being that both breweries ha- are very, like you were saying, Matt, like very niched, which is a good thing because, you know, when they say the riches are in the niches, so uh, I really feel like that's how it works, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a saying, but for a reason. Do, yeah. do me a yeah, favor, wanna, keep uh, just saying real- that. No, keep saying the riches are in the niches and try to convince as many people as possible because we need that. <laughs> I'm with it, man. Yeah, we're now one of the two big uh, specialists in uh, in South Florida when it comes to our, our brewery uh, yeah. design uh, and focus. But uh, I, I just want to go go back to the um, uh, Barrel of Funk uh, real quick. Yeah. Um, so we, we do have a, a, a new version that will be released uh, most likely in spring of next year. Um, but... Uh, one thing that I, I really enjoy about the, the Barrel of Funk series that we've done, uh, first of all, every batch has been different. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like we're, we're trying to uh, emulate a, a, a previous batch uh, or, or approximate it or, or even make it somewhat similar. They've all been extremely different. 
um, but they've all had a similar um, uh, mindset and goal. And what I would say with what that is, and, and Kevin may define this differently, uh, one of our partners, Bill McPhee, who's incredibly passionate about Belgian beer, uh, would also probably describe it a little bit differently. But but the way that I, I kind of view the the purpose, the objective of this, this uh, collaborative series is that we're kind of meeting halfway between what Barrel Amongst does and what Oddbreed does. Yes. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, Barrel Amongst is, is relatively heavily focused, I would say, on a lot of the, uh, the Abbey beer styles, you know, your, your doubles, triples, quads. Uh, and we're obviously at Oddbreed more focused on particularly uh, uh, pale uh, colored beers during that 5 to 7% range that have some acidity, uh, and various levels of, of Brett Funk. And of course, we, we do things that are outside of that range too. But, uh, but the Barrel of Funk series, it's really uh, what we've done so far and, and what I, I hope we can continue to do is really kind of focus on something that's, that's a little bit outside both of our comfort zones. Uh, and so for Oddbreed, that means a beer that's, that's more Belgian-focused mm. and that it's more based on traditional Belgian styles, typically those, those, uh, Abbey styles, mm-hmm. um, and lighter acidity than what is typically present in our beers. Uh, and then for barrel of monks, obviously it's a, it's a beer with, with Brett that still has that backbone of, of being a, a Belgian Abbey style ale. And so, you know, one of the, the next releases that we're doing, it's, uh, uh, currently in barrels still right now, but it's, uh, started out as barrel of monks, Belgian double. So it was brewed, fermented at their place uh, with with their house yeast culture. Then it went on to spent cherries that I used to previously age a uh, or condition rather a uh, uh, blended sour red ale. And after it was on those those spent cherries for a couple months, spent cherries basically meaning that you know the the fruit has already been fermented out, so there aren't any sugars left in there, but it's still the skins of the fruit that's present. There's still a good bit of flavor left in that fruit. And then, of course, it's filled with our, our microbes, with all of our, our house mix cultures. So it spends a couple months on those cherries, and then it went into freshly emptied Blanton's bourbon barrels. And uh, so Great. it's going to have lighter acidity than most of our beers, but of course, it does still have some natural acidity. It's going to be a little bit drier than uh, the Barrel of Monks uh, Abbey Turno Belgian Double. You've got the inclusion of the cherries. Uh, the Blanton's barrels uh, deliver some really nice bourbon notes, and you get some vanilla, some char out of that. Even some cherry notes, I feel like, that are already present in those barrels. Uh, so it's, you know, the goal with with any of our beers, and I, I think this is true for Barrel Monk's beers as well. Uh, Kevin can correct me if I'm speaking out of turn, but I, th- I think he'll agree with me in that it's it's about balance and complexity. And that's that's really what this Barrel of Funk series has been about. And that it's it's something that's a little bit different from what Barrel of Monk's is typically making. It's a little bit different from what Odd Breed is making. But it's still within our wheelhouses, and right. uh, I don't think that there's any other collaborative series that's like it in Florida. I couldn't even think of other series like that, the way you just described that. There was, it seemed like just like a perfect, uh, you know, blend, you know, not to use the word blend, but, you know, of both of what you guys do and what you're best at. And uh, even better that your partners, which is, which is, makes it even, uh, even cooler. Um, I, I'm, as you were sort of describing it, I was like, have I even heard of anything like that? Like, I've seen some interesting stuff, but, like, that is uh, pretty damn unique, I, I'd say, beyond even in South Florida. 
For I'm sure. not a huge I, fan of doing collabs, and I and I do some. I've actually been doing more, uh, but I'm not a huge fan of doing collabs in part in part because I feel like it's a lot of compromises. Uh, it's a compromise it's a lot of times at the host brewery. It's a compromise for the brewer that's going to whatever the host brewery is. And that I, I feel like very rarely do collaborative beers end up being beers that are better or even of equal caliber of what is released at either of the, the two or however many breweries are collaborating together. Um, the Barrel of Funk collaborative series is one that I think is an exception in that sense. And I think part of the reason that it's an exception is because, uh, you know, we, we understand each other's process and products uh, pretty well. Um, and, and going back to the fact that, you know, we've been working together for a while. Uh, so I think we have, you know, a lot of it is, is, you know, what is your objective? What are you trying to achieve? When everybody's on the same page with that, it, it makes it easier to, to, you know, reach your end goal. I get it. I, I don't know if you've ever done one, but a entire podcast about collaborations would be amazing because I'm we've down. all experienced it on our side of things where it's, Hey, uh, we should do a beer together. Great. What's the idea? We're going to make a, what you would call a lager. Cool. I'll throw a recipe back and forth and then I'll come on brew day and we'll stand around and have a beer <laughs> and have lunch and then we'll have a collaboration. And that's what a collaboration really is uh, for a lot of, a lot of people. But I, I do think, I think when you're trying to make, if, you, if you're looking at every beer and saying, how do I make this special? How do I yeah. make this unique? How do I make this stand out? how do I do something not just because I can or because it's a good marketing thing? And by the way, I am on the marketing side of my business and odd breed and barrel amongst. I am cognizant of this, but when we do collaborations, we want to bring something that is, as Matt said, very early on in this with the oddities and outliers, we want to make something that's greater than the sum of its parts, Hmm. something that makes sense, something that works. And it's not just to do it. And I, I think that's that's one of the the joys of working with Matt and and you know every and there are other breweries that we've done collaborations and Matt just mentioned too that he's done them as well that that are out there and, and trying to really make something special unique fun interesting and give the 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 consumer something that goes oh yeah this is really really great not just on paper in practice mm. no that that's a, a really great point. I feel like I guess these days it's almost like collaborations. And look, I'd be down as well for a podcast just on that. I've never done one just speaking about that. That could be an interesting topic to get a few people together and, and we have a chat about uh, back collabs because I feel like they like we've done it, you know, as the beer media that knows people, we've done 15, 20 collabs with, with breweries, some in cans, some just keg and stuff. And they are typically I know what you mean. That's what they, what they joked about when people are like, oh, you know, just, hey, you guys are actually like, hey, can we chuck the stuff in? Can we put the hops in and stuff? Like, <laughs> normally everyone just stands around. So, so you get the phone. You can take a picture of me putting hops in the kettle. And, and like, I've hey, done my job for the day. Boom. Hey, well, my job is to post it on social media. So, you know, I don't know shit else. Not, you know. <laughs> but like, yes, I know what you mean. Like they, there is... Mostly, I have a social media agency as well, so I understand the marketing side and I understand the importance of it. And there's something of the, on, I guess on a on a positive side, like sometimes maybe people don't take them seriously enough and really want to make those collaborative beers like phenomenal. But I imagine there's like a community building angle to it as well, where you know, yeah, you know, maybe if it's 
maybe you met at a festival or you've just admired that brewery and my, or, you, or you are actually friends. You're like, yo, let's do something. And it's, it's like fun doing it or, or there's a, sort of a, just that sort of camaraderie, I guess, that comes with it, which I think is like, you know, we, I guess we talk about that here a lot about craft beer being one of the few industries where competitors want to proactively work together and help each other out, which is weird in any other industry, but in beer, it's completely normal. So collabs have a, an interesting thing. I think, yes, there's two sides to it. I think they can be fun and they can really show the, you know, maybe there's a fan of Barrel of Monks who'd never heard of Oddbreed and then they drink this Barrel of Funk series and like, wow, what the hell is this? Let's go out to Oddbreed and check them out. And I imagine that would be true. That has to be true for, for all collabs. Um, but then, yeah, I guess there's a lot of lazy ones and people just, I don't know, shall we do a New England IPA and we'll have Mosaic and Citra? Cool, let's go, you know. Like... <laughs> I've literally done collaborations where I've asked a brewery, hey, what do you, what do you want to do? Uh, I don't really care. How about a Saison? <laughs> Great. What do you want to do with a Saison? I don't know. Maybe this flavor. How about this? Do you want me to just write a recipe and come up with everything and then you can maybe tweak it a little bit and then you can just come hang out on brew day and then we'll put the beer out? Yeah, that would be easiest. Like those, we have have had those conversations before. So uh, here here's the pitch. Again. Here's the pitch, and, and if you use it, if you use it, we've got to use Barrel Monks and Odd Breed together with the other breweries. I'm we down. call it the collaboration podcast, right? Okay. A, a, under your banner, we get two other breweries involved. We literally get together on the podcast, discuss what we want to do, find like-minded, passionate people right? That are really excited, that want to talk through things, want to talk through flavor profiles. And then we go and brew the beer, right? Uh, Six months later, whatever it is, we make the beer and then we come back on and we discuss it. We break it down. We talk about the things we like, we didn't like. It'll be a whole, a whole thing. If you use it, you got to use odd breed and barrel amongst. That's my only, my only caveat. Honestly, that is, (laughs) that is such a dope idea, bro. Cause we could easily do that and we could make it with another couple of breweries, say in your area to make it simpler. I mean, we could, I could bring some people up here, but then I guess that would stop the physical aspect. So it depends how important that side of it is. No, no, we would, we would definitely go there. We'd take some video. We'd talk about like, we'd joke about the, uh, the aspect of like the collaboration and throwing the hops in the beer and then you've done your job. But yeah, we could have a lot of fun with it. We could take it, you know, a, a, apart from the podcast, get some visual yeah. stuff going on. We do on. vlogs. We, we do yeah. vlogs on our YouTube channel yeah. as well. Vlogs, I, I oh, actually yeah. quite we miss can, those. We can do some travel stuff of like flying up if we end up going to Canada or you guys kind of coming down here or whatever it is. We should talk because that is a fantastic idea. And I think that would be phenomenal to see, to show that process of the discussion of a non-lazy collab where we actually be like okay well what do you do well what do you do well and what do you know and then bring that all in together to to make something interesting because i we always try to do that with our collabs where everything we've ever done we always were like i'm from australia so the very first one one of the first ones we ever did was like all right let's use we use galaxy big secret and ella hops that are all aussie so that was like the little tie-in um, that yep. was cool. You know, we've, we were the first brew, we did the first collab in Quebec where I know it's dumb, but I like dumb shit. So we did like a, 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 a glitter, um, session, New England IPA with Sabro and lactose and stuff. Cal- so, calm down, Matt, Matt, yeah, calm down. Sorry, it's sorry, okay. Matt. It's going to be okay. I won't say anything. <laughs> I, say, 
I got an idea for you, Matt. <laughs> I, I just want you to know that I have a T-shirt that's in our tap room for sale, and on the back of it, it says "lactose intolerant since 2017." <laughs> and uh, the one comment I've received from numerous people is, "But that's not the year you were born. Why don't you include the year that you were born on the back of the T-shirt?" Like, uh, and I say, "Well, point. because 2017 is when our brewery started, so yeah. you know, I don't, I don't need everybody to know all the all my personal all the details." <laughs> But yes, I, I'm lactose intolerant. I think that milkshake IPAs should not be a style. Um, okay, but, I respect that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, my friend and I own a Twitter account called Team Lactose, and we promote lactose beers. <laughs> the, so the, I don't like lactose. I don't drink milk at all. I'm completely against it. So it's very funny. Sorry, Kev. No, no I'm just saying the funny thing is on our last podcast when I was here, we started talking about smoothie sours, mm-hmm. and I used it as an example of a style that I don't understand. And the fact that I'm not against them, I'm not going to rail against them. I'm never going to tell somebody you shouldn't drink them or they're bad or they're not beer, but I just don't understand. And Greg is like, that's one of my favorite styles. We can have uh, a whole debate here. I feel like on this video feed, I am in the perfect middle between oh, you between two. Between the two. Uh, <laughs> the, the two extremes. I, I should be moderating a debate. Uh, there, there's another. There's, there's another. Uh, that could be fun. Content. Like I know, I know it's ridiculous, and I kind of like it because it's ridiculous. And and to be fair, I'm actually not so say like, I got into beer ten years ago really heavily, right? So like, and I didn't study like like you did, Matt, in Europe, and which I know a few other people who are very feel the same way as you. We think I'm a, I'm ridiculous with the lactose and the the, the dumb shit, um, and I understand it. And I didn't get like now if I if I as much as I you know was leaning into the lactose stuff and and anything kind of ridiculous like my favorite style easily is a is a lager or pills like easily any day just like you were saying it's all you drink if I could drink only that I would drink that forever I could never drink anything else I'd be more than happy and I appreciate what we're drinking tonight in just you know if not more than the the ridiculous stuff I don't know because I don't have like I'm a a hip hop dude. I've been into it since I was like like ten years old in Australia. The only kid in the suburbs of Melbourne listening to rap music, and I got shit my whole life for it. So when hip hop became pop music and popular, I had a problem with that. I'm like, all of a sudden, all these people are into it. I'm like, fuck you, man. Like, I suffered for this. You guys, you know, tried to fight me at school because I had a t shirt on or whatever, and now all, all, it's cool. So I understand that the people who were into beer in like 1993. We're drinking Sierra Nevada and stuff, and I come in here. I'm like, "Hey, let's get a smoothie sour." And like, I'm like, look at this, like, dickhead. I, I understand the mentality for it, definitely. I just don't have that historical, um, like, you know, preference to be like, no, beer has to be this, this, and this. And I'm not saying that that's what you're saying, but I, I get the general purestish sure. no, mentality. And I, and I uh, you know, jokes aside, I don't mean to to come across as snob. Oh, dude, there's not a, not even. Uh, there's a time the and a place for for just about every beer. Uh, of course. I just personally don't feel like milkshake IPAs <laughs> have a place. But uh, I don't know, but, you, you know, for, for each person, you know, everybody's got their own palate, right? And yeah. uh, at, at the end of the day, beer is fun. That's that's uh, that's the purpose of it. You know, I, yeah. I make a product, and I hope that it provides some people some enjoyment. Um, you know, if somebody else, some other brewer is making a different product with that same objective, and it and it uh, it achieves that objective, then then good for them. You know, uh, it doesn't need to be for me uh just as i know that my beer isn't for everyone either uh you know i'm i'm fortunate that uh that some people like the beer that i make 
uh, that that makes me happy and it allows me to, to keep making what I make. I, I feel fortunate because I know a lot of brewers, they make beers that they don't like. Uh, mm-hmm. That's probably the majority of brewers. If you talk mm-hmm. to the, the average brewer, they'll probably tell you that, you know, like I just mentioned, that they drink a lot of lagers. That's what they enjoy. Um, you know, I don't know uh, what your lingo is up in uh, Canada, but everybody down here calls them crispy boys. Yeah, so we call them. It doesn't really matter what it is. If it's a, if it's a pale, lower, you know, ABV beer, uh, that's some type of lager. That's a, that's a crispy boy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I, I love those. Um, you know, and, uh, there are plenty of breweries that have to make things that, that they don't personally enjoy, but that sell well. And, you know, maybe they have some type of, uh, uh, clever pop culture reference, you know, for the name. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't, I don't have anything against that. It's just, it's just not my style, you know? And I'm, I, again, I'm just glad that I get to do things that are my style. Man, I'm 100% with you. I, and I think that's the beauty of all of this is that, you know, well, you guys have both for, for you know, we're talking about Odd Breed tonight, but even with Barrel of Monks, like I know that it's, you guys are, are very true to yourselves and you're able to make very, very high quality. Like I said, the wit, no, I don't think I've ever had a wit that good from, from Barrel of Monks. Like it blew my mind and it's so not my thing. And I, I, I genuinely loved it. And I'm, I still, I, I've been thinking about it since, since then. It's like, fuck, that was a good people. And like, you know, I think it's really cool that you guys are able to, to be able to do that and not have to, I don't want to say it, like sell your soul type of thing to, to do what the masses want. And you're like, oh man, this is garbage, but it's what people want. And then you just, another business making stuff that people want that you don't care about. And I think there's really something to, to that authenticity that, uh, that you have with this, with the quality of these products and, and the, you can't make beer this good without like you said before matt with the patience you guys have had the patience this beer just requires patience it's time is like the fifth ingredient uh really and um i don't know i think that's really admirable that uh, that you you're willing to sort of stick stick with it because uh, to make what you really care about and convince people that uh, not well the new people the, the people who know you don't have to convince them for shit you know they're already lining up for this stuff but it's a it's it's an interesting time in beer, and it's it, I think what what you guys do with this is, is very much needed, and the sacrifice that you've done for the, all those profits that you could have had in that first year and a bit by doing this difficult, or uh, I think it really contributes to the scene, to the craft beer scene as a real well rounded place to have this type of stuff that's influenced by Belgium and made completely locally with that much love and attention and care it's uh it's a beautiful thing i really i really appreciate this stuff these beers these two things we've had tonight are like exceptional and you got me excited for the 17 percent still beer i'm i'm uh like utopias it's been a while but uh, i'm like i'm super curious for that that's awesome well thank you we really appreciate yeah, the kind thanks. words no i love it guys was there anything else you want to touch on i feel like we got most of it covered i don't know if i forgot anything uh you know matt is the uh, is the talent he's the one that makes all this stuff i get to be the shill and make <laughs> sure everybody knows that uh as of right now and i don't know when this podcast is going to come out but we do have uh, available um uh memberships in the in the in the rare bottle club and if you are not in florida you can get a proxy 
And you can sign up for the club and you can get these extremely rare special beers that only you could get to have your hands on. And we do have a lot of people outside of the state of Florida that take advantage of that. They have a friend, they have a family member, they have someone that can pick those bottles up for them. Uh, You can also check us out and find our beer on Osner which is uh, a bigger and bigger platform that is featuring really, really rare special craft beers. And you can sign up for that. And if you live in any state, any country, you can see these beers. And yes, you need a proxy to pick them up at this point, but you can get your hands on some really, really rare beers. And maybe in the next six months or so, we may start having an opportunity to ship some beers. So maybe even if you don't have a proxy down there, Maybe you can just keep your eye on us, you know, uh, check in on on Oddbreed every now and then, check in on the Osner app, check in on our website, and just see when things actually start to open up because we're working on some things. We have the kind of beer that travels really well, that ages really well, and it's the kind of thing that's perfect for that kind of outlet, and we're working to make that a reality. I love it. That's great. I looked up that Osner app because you mentioned it last time. I never even heard of it. Um, fascinating. So it's sort of mm-hmm. like a way for, for the people who aren't familiar. It's a it's sort of like a, a an app where you can purchase beer or reserve it or something. Like what was the what's the function of it? You can literally buy beer from breweries all over, and, and the only ones I've seen have been in the U.S. Okay. But if depending on your region, you can say this is my region. And for instance, there are right now I, I want to say ballpark ten breweries in the South Florida area that you can whenever these beers come available you get a push notification on your phone you click twice to buy them and you can pick them up in store some breweries are able to ship but they have breweries all over the united states and if you are on the app you can look all over that geographic area that you determine to find beers that you're looking for we also have the rare bottle club sign up is on osner so uh, they also offer us the ability to do stuff like that. So it's a growing platform. They're actually involved with Untapped. They're okay. involved with several other platforms. So it's that in a couple of years, I think Osner is going to be a pretty big player. And I would highly recommend for the kind of people that are listening to your podcast or the kind of people that line up outside of a brewery, or the kind of people <laughs> that get their hands on a bottle and they send it to to a friend of theirs in Uruguay, right? And they get a special beer back. That This is a great platform for those people because you can find that rare special stuff and find a way to get your hands on it. I love it. It, it, really, it really makes it very easy for the consumer. Um, you know, it's very intuitive to use. And it, you know, in my opinion, definitely beats standing outside in South Florida waiting in a line. Uh, you know, we've, we've actually been kind of unique in that we've sold our beer online since day one, uh, when we opened. And part of that was because me as, uh, uh, not just a a brewer, but somebody who likes drinking beer too. I don't want to wait in line at a beer release on the weekend. Uh, I just, I want to do other things, you know? And so, uh, this, this platform is very user-friendly. I I really feel like, especially with the, the pandemic and consumer habits changing, uh, I feel like this is kind of the, the future way of, of purchasing beer at breweries. I love it. But I do Come. want to point out that neither one of us have any stake in Osner. So <laughs> we we are not shareholders. Maybe you should so, change that. Yeah, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should. Maybe that's my retirement. But uh, yeah, I just want to point that oh, out. 
No, I want to see if it's available in Canada because uh, there's. I noticed when you mentioned the pandemic, when uh, when this first started, my first thought, to be honest, O S N E R, right? O Z N R. O Z N R. Apologize. Okay. Um, when the pandemic first started, I was like, oh, uh, maybe finally it's going to be a little easier to. No, it's not in Canada. God damn it. Okay. Um, it might be a little easier to get some of these beers that are tough, you know tough to, to find and tough to get and it was the opposite like the beers that maybe i could take an uber down to some of the hype breweries to, you know usually the haze and that type of stuff because all the breweries that do this type of stuff aren't in in montreal but um they would do online sales and they would go in literally two minutes online like you had to be ready and already know what's going on to go to be like boom at um, at boom boom check out like gone like within seconds or a circle and um that was really annoying. So I love the idea that there is something. So maybe then this is something to watch because this might be an app that'll start to like right now, I guess, cause I, it's not on the app store, which means it's probably just in the U S. So, um, either use VPN or, uh, you know, you get, get a mate out there to grab it, which is great. So that's awesome. So that's one way to do it. Cause Kevin, you were telling me last time that, uh, you know, people are lining up for Oddbreed, uh, beers, which is not surprising based on what I'm tasting now. It all adds up to me. This is uh, the type of stuff for that. So that sounds fantastic. Um, just before we wrap up, I want to take the thumbnail for YouTube. Uh, do you want to hold up some of the bottles there? Because we've got to let the people know. You got a bottle there, Matt? Yep. There we so, go. Uh, which, which one do you want me to hold up here? I that got, one. Uh, yeah, you go. Push off the farm and kumquats. <laughs> Love <Yeah>. it. Perfect. <laughs> Ready? Gotcha. No, wait, wait. Keep holding. Keep holding. Keep no, it up. Got it. Boom. Um, where can everybody find uh, Oddbreed online, guys? So our website, uh, oddbreed.com. Very simple. Uh, and then uh, definitely Osner. Um, so I guess only only within the U.S. right now, but uh, but that will I'm sure change uh, hopefully soon. Uh, Osner's really gained a lot of traction in our area in a relatively short period of time. So I, I think it's probably only a matter of time before they they, they expand to to other markets. Love it. And is and, it odd, and, odd breed beer or something on uh, on Instagram and stuff? Uh, oh, yeah. So for Instagram, it's uh, odd breed wild ales. Wild ales. Perfect. Yep. Kev. No, I was just saying, I was just going to say the exact same thing that you, <laughs> you asked. So uh, once again, I got to be the shill. <laughs> Please no, Shill it up, bro. This is what it's for. You know the vibe. You're a podcaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stick around in a sec. I'm going to wrap this up and then we'll, we'll finish up off here. But guys, honestly, thank you so much. This is like genuinely fascinating. I'm uh, so impressed with these beers. And I know there's still a couple others that uh, I'm, I'm going to make sure I document and uh, and share with the people. But, you know, congrats on everything you guys are doing. Happy anniversary for uh, the end of November. Um, for anyone out there, please go and get this. Uh, is it oddities and what's the other O word? Fuck, you told oddities me four. and outliers. Man, you told me seven. <laughs> Blend two. You told me seven times. God damn it. Um, this is exceptional. I, I could drink this all day. This, this is just mind-blowing stuff. Uh, I, I completely get the hype. This is this is beautiful. So thank you both for taking the time. This has been uh, super enlightening. It's really great to hear both your perspectives 
on on you know the, the this style this approach to to making beer I, I really appreciate this is genuinely fantastic i hope everybody learned a lot so everyone thank you so much for watching and listening if you enjoyed the episode smash the thumbs up hit subscribe below hit the notification bell so you know when the new year drops follow us on social media at BAOS podcast and check out the long form audio we are back every wednesday 8 p.m eastern we don't go live anymore but the episodes will be live uh, and you can see very attractive gentlemen like Uncle Kevin and Uncle Matt talk about craft beer every week. We will see you in the next episode. Cheers. Peace.